Philippians 2, 19 through 30. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by the news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is the word of God. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat, church. Thank you, worship team. We serve a great God, amen? Mm, amen. Well, welcome, welcome everybody. So great to have everyone here this morning. Thank you for being here. We're here again to worship Jesus and to hear from Jesus, hear from his word. And I want to start off this morning by talking about examples. We use them in life all the time. If you have ever taught anyone anything... Likely, you've turned to an ex- as an example to show what you're talking about. Examples help us. They help us clarify things. They help us give us something to visualize or something to grasp onto to help us understand some abstract concept. For example, I could talk to you about the force of gravity. I could tell you that the more mass, the more gravity. I could tell you that gravity pulls objects toward itself, toward the surface. And you would understand that. Or I could just simply use an example of something and, and you get it. It becomes clear. Watching gravity in action is far more impactful than just simply talking about it. Well, that's kind of like what Paul does today. We're in our seventh week of the book of Philippians, and it's been great. It's been fun enjoying uh, diving into this book, diving into this epistle, and extracting the truths that Paul has for us and has for the Philippian church, and by extension, us here at Harvest Decatur some 2,000 years later. We've talked about how Paul greeted the church, how he expressed his thanksgiving for them and his prayers for them. We talked about how Paul has given them an update and has also done some challenging to the church. You might remember from chapter 1, verse 27, that he has challenged the Philippian congregation to walk a life worthy of the gospel. And that one imperative has been driving everything that we've been saying. He expounded on that by challenging them to be unified by facing opposition together by striving for humility together, and by seeking to be obedient together. And we get to our passage today, and it's almost like he's taking another turn. In fact, he kind of is taking a little bit of a different turn. He's changing from the challenging part to updating them on, here's what's coming next. 
in his letter, he's finishing up one side and he's transitioning to, I want to give you a heads up as to what my future plan is. I want to send to you Timothy and Epaphroditus. But as he's explaining what's coming next, as he's telling them the, his plans for, for what's coming next with the church and what's coming next with him reaching out to the church, he's also using these two men as examples to what he's been talking about. He's using Timothy and Epaphroditus as examples of godly leadership, of godly character, rather, of those who live worthy. He says, I've been talking about a lot of things. I've been challenging you on a lot of things. Now I'm going to give you a couple of examples of two men that are doing this, that have got this, that are living this. It's always good to have human examples of what we're trying to be in Jesus Christ. Would you agree with that? Human examples can be an encouragement to us. And that's what Paul is wanting to accomplish here as he opens these passages with Timothy and Epaphroditus. So if you would, if you have your Bibles open to chapter 2, verse 19, follow along with me as I read. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ, but you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a father, as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Let's take just a minute and talk about Timothy. Timothy has got to be one of my favorite New Testament characters. He is a faithful servant of the Lord. He's mentioned seven times in Paul's epistles, and two of those epistles were written directly to him. He was a pastor at the church of Ephesus for a time, and he is a true and trusted servant of the Lord and faithful to Paul. He's one of my favorite characters. We also know from Hebrews 13, 23, that Timothy, at least once in his life, faced imprisonment because of his faith in Jesus Christ. Faithful to Jesus Christ. Now join with me back in verse 25. Let's look at Epaphroditus. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my beloved and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now, unlike Timothy, not much is known about Epaphroditus. One commentator actually remarked that the name Epaphroditus was a common name in the first century, so it's really hard to nail down exactly who this man was. In all of the New Testament, he's only mentioned in Philippians. He's mentioned here, and he's mentioned at the end of the book. But we do know that he was the man that was charged with a financial gift from the church at Philippi and to bring that to Paul. So, it's logical to conclude that he was probably a member of the Philippian church, probably a member of the Philippian church. And though we know very little about him, he's still an example to believers as one who lived a worthy life, a life of the gospel. So this morning, 
I want to take these two men, and what I really want to do is I want, I want to compare them side by side, and I want to share two things this morning that we learn about these men and how they exemplified the worthy life. I want to look at two things. How do we live worthy lives? How did these men live lives worthy of the gospel? Let's look at two things. Number one in your notes this morning, live selflessly devoted to others. Live selflessly devoted to others. Paul has already written early on in the book to count others as more significant than yourselves. Count others more significant than yourselves. And he's going to show us an example of two men who do that. Look at verse 19 with me. I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. You know, it's interesting. One of Paul's reasons in sending Timothy is for his own benefit. Do you see that? One of Paul's reasons that he wants to send Timothy is for his own benefit. He says, I want to send Timothy so that I too may be cheered by news of you. He's wanting to send Timothy to go to observe the Philippian church and then to report back to Paul and notice he expects a good report. I'm sending Timothy so that I may be cheered by news of you. By the time Timothy is going to get to the church, they would have already received the letter the Philippian letter, they would have already read it. And what Paul's hoping is, read it, take it, learn from it, be unified. And when Timothy gets here, I want him to see some changes in you and he can report that back to me. I want to be cheered by news of you. And we've talked about how the Philippian church was near and dear to Paul's heart. He loved this church. We've also talked about how th there weren't a whole lot of issues, as far as we can see, for, at this church that Paul had to correct. Not like at Corinth when he was correcting bad doctrine or, and bad behavior, so he expects a good report. He knows their heart. He knows their character. And he believes that by reading this book and by sending Timothy, that Timothy's going to come back with a good report. He's also sending Timothy because he knows Timothy's heart. Look at verse 20. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. And that term like him there in verse 20, I have no one like him, that literally means of like mind or soul. In other words, Timothy and Paul were like-minded. They had the same focus. They had the same drive. They were both passionate about the gospel and passionate about the church. He says of Timothy, he will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, genuinely concerned for your spiritual growth, for your discipleship. In other words, Timothy and Paul... It's almost like sending the same person in a way because they both have the same desire to see this church grow. And then he does something interesting. You probably noticed in verse 21, he says, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Now, who is they all? I believe what's going on here is that he's pointing back to something he said earlier in chapter one, verse 15, when he said, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. Do you remember we talked about that? That there were some who were indeed preaching the gospel, but they did it with selfish motives. They did it with envy. They did it with rivalry. They didn't have a pure heart. And I believe what he's doing here in verse 21 is he's referring back to that group of people and essentially saying, Timothy's not like that. He is genuinely concerned. He's coming to proclaim the gospel, or he's coming to observe out of genuine concern for your welfare, not like those who come with an agenda. 
He's saying, I have no one as like-minded to me as Timothy. He will be genuinely concerned for you, your spiritual growth, your advancement in the gospel. He is bent not on his own interests, not on a selfish agenda, but he simply wants to see Christ in you. In other words, Timothy is selflessly devoted to others. He counts others more significant than himself. Similarly, skip down a little bit, because I told you what I'd like to do is, 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 is compare these two individuals side by side. Skip down to verse 25, and let's look at Epaphroditus. He says in verse 25, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my beloved and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Now, first of all, it, it was common in the first century epistles for the author to give titles to people they thought well of. You see those titles at the beginning. He said, my, Epaphroditus, my beloved and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister. He first of all calls him my brother, and we know as a church family that sometimes we refer to each other as brother and sister because spiritually speaking, that's exactly what we are. We are children of God. So he refers to him as his brother. Now, you might hear me say, as I talk to um, other men in the church, you might hear me refer to them as brothers sometimes. I'll say, how's it going, brother? Or I'll even text it to him. What's going on, brother? That's intentional. I don't call other men who I'm not sure of their salvation. I don't refer to them as brother because I don't know where they are in their faith. But those who are in the church of God, those who are in the faith of God, I, I try at times. I intentionally try to refer to them as brother, and that's intentional because they are my brother. And that's what, he's, that's what Paul is doing here. These are words of, ex, of affection expressing the fact that we're a spiritual family. Epaphroditus was Paul's spiritual brother, but also, look, he was a fellow worker and a fellow soldier. Let me just say something about the Christian life. The Christian life is one of work and battle. The Christian life is one of work and battle. And we've experienced that, and Paul challenges them. He challenges them to strive together. This is work. The Christian life is work. I think this is one of the evidences as to, as to the, the, the genuineness of the Christian faith, because it's not easy. So many religions out there in the world are just religions that people follow, and they're easy. They, just, they go and they do their pittance. They go and they do their service and check. But that's not the Christian life. Christian life is not we show up on Sundays, we give a check mark, and we've done our duty. The Christian life is every day, every moment, leaning on the power of Jesus Christ. It's work, and it's battle. We battle sin, we battle temptation, and we battle these things together. It's work. So he calls him my fellow worker and my fellow soldier. These are high titles. And then look at the other two titles. The first three referred to Paul, my, my, my. The second two referred to the Philippians. He is your messenger and minister to my need. We've already said Epaphroditus was the one who brought the Philippians offering to Paul. He was the one who brought their financial gift. He was their emissary to bring this, their support. You gotta think about how much trust does that take? You know, they didn't write checks back then. They gave him whatever they had Maybe if it was gold, silver, or whatever, they put it in a pouch, gave it to him, and he was to take that to Paul. That, that's a lot of trust. He was their emissary to bring that to Paul, so he was their messenger and minister. He goes on to say, look at verse 26. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Do you see that word distressed? Do you know where else it's used in the New Testament? 
It's used of Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane when he sweat drops of blood. This is not a mild concern. Epaphroditus was distressed because the Philippians knew that he had been ill. Again, this supports our point. Timothy was genuinely concerned for the Philippian church, and Epaphroditus was genuinely concerned for them as well. Now, what's going on here? I told you we didn't know a whole lot about Epaphroditus. So what exactly is going on here is we kind of look at this passage, verses 25 through 30. We have to do a little bit of speculation here, but we know that Epaphroditus was ill. We see that. That's obvious from the text. We don't know exactly when he contracted this. We don't know how long it lasted, and we don't know how the Philippian church found out about it. So we speculate a little bit, and some commentators have remarked that, you know, no one traveled alone in the first century. You didn't do that. You didn't travel alone. That was dangerous to travel alone. So Epaphroditus probably had traveling companions. And possibly, we kind of see this at the end of verse 30, possibly he got sick on his way to see Paul. And possibly he pushed through being sick, he got there, and while he was there, he was made better, as we'll see. And it's possible that one of his traveling companions may have taken word back to the Philippians that, hey, Epaphroditus is sick. It's speculation, but somehow, regardless of how it happened, the church knew that he was ill. And look at verse 27. Indeed, he was ill near to death. We would say in our day and age that he was at death's door. He wasn't just sick, he was on the verge of dying, and you probably can guess that the the medical world back then was not what it is today. Most people who got this sick died. Back then, most people who got that sick, as sick as Epaphroditus did, they died. So this was a big deal, actually, that he recovered. Bear that in mind. Bear that in mind, because I, sometimes I think we might lose how significant this illness was because we live in a day where, where our medical science is, is huge and helpful. Bear in mind, and you can understand then how stressed Epaphroditus would be because his home church thinks that he's ill and possibly could think that he's already passed. They have no idea of his present condition. They don't know if he's alive or dead. So he's longing for their relief. He wants them to be relieved that he's okay. So Paul writes, he has been longing for you and he has been distressed. He is distressed knowing that his church family back home is distressed about his health. He's not thinking about himself. He's thinking about the feelings of other people. So he too lives a life self-sacrificially for others. Now as you read this, it should really make you appreciate the age of instant communication. Take a moment and just think, if this had happened today in our church, if Epaphroditus had been a part of our church and we had sent him off and he'd gotten sick, we would have known the instant he was better when he posted it on Facebook. But they didn't have that back then. The Philippian church had no way of knowing that Epaphroditus, how he was doing. They had no way of knowing that he was doing better until somebody made the 800-mile journey on foot from Rome to Philippi and told them the good news. So you can see his distress knowing that his church doesn't know that he's doing better. Look at the rest of verse 27. We've been talking about this, but you, you saw this earlier when Hillel read it. But God had mercy on him and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. All healing is a mercy from God, amen? 
All healing is a mercy from God. But in this day and age, when such a sickness likely is going to lead to someone's death, it was, an, it was a mercy from the Lord. God had mercy on him, and not only on him, look what he says, but also on me. Paul says, Epaphroditus' healing affected me too, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. One commentator I read this week said that Paul, like Jesus, was also a man of sorrows. If you read the book of Acts, you see this. The persecutions, those who abandoned him, the constant pressures of dealing with struggling churches, Paul was also a man of sorrows, and Epaphroditus' death would have just added to those, but instead, God showed mercy. You know, when God heals someone, it affects those around him, does it not? Both of these men, Timothy and Epaphroditus, exemplify lives worthy of the gospel by putting others above themselves. They were selflessly devoted to others. Now, let me ask, what about us? These men are examples to us. What about us? How well do we love other people? Are you willing to give up something to love other people? Are you willing to be distressed because of another person's distress? Are you willing to love others? Are you willing to give up your time and your energy for other people? Can I just take a moment? I'd like to brag on our youth group for just a second. A couple of years back, we had a fall cleaning party. We just told the kids, come and bring a rake. And they did. And we spent the evening raking up under the uh, harvest kids' wing and they did it selflessly. And sure, there was a little clowning around because we're all kids, but it, it was fun. But they gave up at their time. Think about what could they have been doing with that time? Pretty much anything they wanted, but they chose to come here and serve. Let me share another story with you. A few years back, I was writing a paper for a class. It was a long paper. It was about 12 pages long, and I was almost done with it. And then a few misclicks of my mouse... And I accidentally saved over it with another document. I was very happy in that moment. <laughs> you know, I, I have a buddy who's got some experience in recovering erased material for computers, and he gave up his evening to come help me recover my paper. And I got it recovered, praise the Lord. That's putting others first. And you might say, you know, those are small ways. Absolutely, they're small ways, but it's still putting others first. And if you want to be an example of a worthy life, you must live selflessly devoted to others. So let me ask you, how can you do that this week? Who's someone that you can live selflessly devoted to this week? Who's someone you can reach out to? You might think to yourself, we've kind of gone over this over the weeks. Absolutely, we've gone over this. That's part of the Christian life. That's something we need to have drilled into. I need to have drilled into me that we constantly reach out to other people because that's part of the Christian life and that's what is exemplified here with Timothy and Epaphroditus. So how do we live worthy lives? Number one, we live selflessly devoted to others and number two, we live committed to the work of the gospel. Number two, we live committed to the work of the gospel. So jump back up. We're talking about Timothy now again. Jump back up with me to verse 22. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Now, we just got done, remember the context, we just got done contrasting Timothy's faithfulness with those who teach with selfish motives. And then he goes, but you know Timothy's proven worth. You know Timothy. You know him. The Philippians had history with Timothy. It's very interesting. In Acts chapter 16, 
That's the chapter where Paul meets Timothy. That's the chapter, they're in Lystra, and Paul meets Timothy and takes him in as part of his ministry team, so to speak. And just a few verses later is when Paul enters Philippi. Now, you have to be kind of careful because sometimes the stories that were given in Acts, there's more time that passes in between them than the text actually shows in the, on page. But it seems like shortly after Timothy joins Paul's team, they're going into Philippi. So he's green, And he's ministering with Paul, and they're seeing his faithfulness, his faithfulness to the gospel and his faithfulness to Paul. It's possible that Timothy was there when Lydia was saved. It's possible that Timothy was there when the Philippian jailer was saved, when the church at Philippi was born. Somehow or another, the church knew Timothy, and they knew his proven character, that he was committed to the gospel He served alongside Paul through trials, through persecutions, and not once had abandoned his spiritual father. By the way, it was very common in this day and age for mentors and mentees to have this kind of familial language, father and son. It means so much more when we remember that not only are they father and son as far as mentor and mentee, but they're father and son spiritually. You look at that term proven worth. Do you see that there in verse 22? You know Timothy's proven worth. That refers to to something being put to the test. Timothy had been put to the test time and time again, and they knew. They knew his proven worth. He had come out having proved himself, in other words. The Philippian church knew that, and they were well aware of his character and his commitment to the gospel. Timothy was sold out for the gospel. All right, jump back down to verse 28. We're going to consider Epaphroditus now. Verse 28, I am the more eager to send him. This is after we heard that Epaphroditus is distressed because the Philippians knew he was sick. He says, I am, more, I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. Now, it's interesting. I've told you a couple of times now, we don't know a whole lot about Epaphroditus or this situation here, but some commentators actually believe that Epaphroditus' original plan was to go to Paul with a gift and then stay with Paul and minister with him. They believe that because some of the language here is a little funny. If you look back at verse 25, go back to verse 25 with me and read. He says, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. Why would he word it that way if Epaphroditus was expected back anyway? Also in verse 28, you see Paul says, I am eager to send him to you. I am eager to send him to you. And then we look down in verse verse 29. He challenges them to receive him in the Lord. Why would he have to be this insistent? A lot of people say, or a lot of people believe that Epaphroditus was probably meant to stay with Paul. Again, this is speculation, but it does make the language make sense. And also, it also shows, if you look back at verse 30, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Again, like Timothy, Epaphroditus was committed to the work of the gospel. He risked his life, and presumably what Paul's talking about there is his coming to bring the gift and even getting sick along the way. He pushed through to bring them the gift, risking his life to shore up what was lacking in your service to me. Epaphroditus was committed to, to the gospel. Somehow, way, he nearly died for his service and that didn't stop him. That's commitment. The ultimate commitment, of course, would be to give our lives for the gospel, but this shows Epaphroditus' commitment. 
So let me ask you again, Harvest. Are you committed to the gospel? Are you committed to living for the gospel? You may know the story of Mala Mo. She was one of the first missionary teams to enter South Africa. She's famous for building what was called a gospel wagon. And she drove it all over parts of South Africa. She would hand out small gifts. She would serve tea. And of course, she would talk about Jesus. She did that at age 65, from 65 to 80. Then she took on another position at the mission, training other missionaries for another 10 years. She died at 90 years old, having served the Lord, having been committed to the Lord. And it's said that there were many South Africans at her funeral. She was committed. Now, I'm asking you if you're committed. I'm not necessarily asking you to go to South Africa and serve as a missionary, unless that's what God calls you to do. And that would be awesome. What I am asking is, Are you fully committed to the gospel? Are you ready to do whatever God wants you to do for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of spreading his message? And let's be honest, there's many small ways we can do that. You want to know, I think in some ways, not in all ways, but I think in some ways it's harder to be a Christian here in America than in a place like South America because we have so much distracting us here. So much distracting us here. There's there's so many cool things that life has. There are hardships, sure, for missionaries. Absolutely, I'm not denying that. So let me ask you, what can you do this week? How can you break through the distractions to serve the gospel or to be committed to the gospel to serve Jesus Christ? Have you stopped and just asked for boldness to do that? Have you asked God, help me work through the distractions to be a faithful minister of the gospel? I say we need to challenge each other toward that end. Challenge each other toward that end. We are to live lives committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. By the way, that's the only thing that's going to last forever. Whatever other things that we have in our lives that we build our lives upon, those things are going to fade one day. And the only thing that lasts for eternity is the work we did for Jesus Christ. Let's challenge each other to be committed to the gospel. Let's look back at verse 29. I want to point something out. Verse 29, he says, So receive him in the Lord with all joy, talking about Epaphroditus, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Do you see that? To complete what was lacking in your service to me? That might sound a little weird to our English ears, okay? That's not a slam. He's not saying, you're not doing your job. Epaphroditus had to do it. That's simply a reference to their physical absence because of their distance. Paul says something similar in 1 Corinthians 16, 7. He says, I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence. In other words, you can't be with me, but the fact that we have people from your church here, that makes up for it. And it's a blessing. You know, we have, it's already been talked about, but we have um, Christians coming from Turkey, eh? And what a joy it's going to be to worship with believers, with fellow brothers and sisters from the other side of the world. Let's pray that that time is used to its absolute best for their blessing and for our blessing. Now, I want to point out something before we close. Both of these men 
are examples of living lives worthy of the gospel. But just for a second, I want to take a closer look at Epaphroditus. I'm going to read the passage again. I've thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my beloved and my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Epaphroditus left his home. He traveled to an unfamiliar place. He risked his life and he brought a gift. Now, who does that remind you of? Our Savior left his home. He too traveled to an unfamiliar land. He too not only risked his life, but gave his life to give us a gift, the ultimate gift, the gift of eternal life. Our Savior forsook heaven because he selflessly loved others. Our Savior forsook heaven and endured hardship, agony, and death because he was committed to the Father's plan. See, the reason that Timothy and Epaphroditus are such great examples of men who live a worthy life is not because they had any great quality in and of themselves. They were just men. But they had their eyes on Jesus Christ. They are great examples because they looked to the ultimate example who lived the worthy life. Jesus loved. He didn't come with his own agenda. Remember what he said? I do the will of him who sent me. He loved selflessly by sacrificing himself, and he was fully committed to his father. So how can we be like Timothy and Epaphroditus? You know, it's interesting. In 1 Corinthians 11, 1, Paul says, you imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's an outlandish statement. You imitate me? It's outlandish unless Paul can say it because his life is totally surrendered to Jesus Christ. Just as Timothy, just as Epaphroditus. In fact, it would be my dream that this whole church be such examples of those who live worthy lives that we could say to others, look to me as I look to Jesus. How do we get there? We keep our eyes focused on Jesus just as these men did. The way for you and I to become an example of a worthy life is to keep our eyes on Jesus Christ, to be fully committed to the gospel, to be selflessly devoted to others. We must keep our eyes focused on Jesus Christ. If you want to be able to say with confidence and with conviction, hey, look to me as I look to Jesus, then you've got to look to Jesus. He's got to be your number one pursuit, and the only way that he can be your number one pursuit is you constantly go back to the gospel again and again and again and again. We need this. We need his gospel every single day, and the deeper that we drive the gospel into our lives, the truth that Jesus Christ sets us free from sin, sets us free from struggle, sets us free from death, the, the more we drive that in, the more we will be an example of a worthy life. Bow with me in prayer.
Lord, you are good. You are so good. We need you, Jesus. We need your message. Those in here whose lives have been given to you, they want to be that example to others. I want to be that example. I want to live a life worthy of the gospel, and I know my brothers and my sisters in here want the same thing, but we need you to do it. We can't do this in our own strength. Timothy and Epaphroditus could not have lived that life in their own strength. They had to look to you, so we look to you. The author and perfecter of our faith. When he asks you, Jesus, change hearts. Take our lives. They're yours. Do a work that only you can do. Let us leave this place closer to you. And let us go into a world that desperately needs this and let them see people who love others and are fully committed to the gospel. We pray in the awesome name of Jesus.